I want to set the tone this morning, um, particularly the goal or the reason for this teaching as it relates to our vision celebration for Wildwood. I think in a word, we can say that we can have all the goals we like as a church, but we will never see them come to their full fruition without the assurance of our salvation, an assurance where we know, despite our ongoing sin, which we despise about ourselves, against which we struggle, where we know from the Word of God that He is ours and we are His, period and forever, and only by His promise and power, unless says Martin Luther, we are refreshed and reminded of that regularly. We simply lose sight of what we're meant to do as Christians, and more importantly, why we're doing it. Remember, we love God and others because we have first been loved by Him. Romans eight twenty nine and 30 affirms possibly more than any other passage in Scripture, the rock-solid confidence with which we're able to engage all of life, always placing ourselves second because God and others are placed in our hearts first. That is the vision above the vision. Sinclair Ferguson further sets the tone for this morning's teaching with a profound excerpt, and we're going to bring this back up on the screen as this morning goes from time to time, because it literally guides everything that we're talking about. He says this, and I quote, the brilliance, clarity, and majesty of the stars can only truly be seen against the backdrop of the darkest night, end quote. Now, for the sake of time, we book in the main thesis for what we've discussed so far in Romans chapter 8. Here's the crux of what we've learned. Most importantly, chapter 8 begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. And that fact is only true for those who are in Christ Jesus by faith. That's a reality, by the way, that God the Holy Spirit affirms in our souls. And now we come to our discussion in Romans 8, 29, and 30. There is a very particular reason that this otherwise philosophically difficult subject is being taken up by Paul in these verses, and it is not <laughs> to stir up the so-called predestination controversy that has plagued the church, capital C, for centuries. In short, Paul takes up this subject in Romans 8, 29, and 30 so that the assurance of our eternal salvation is affirmed when, against everything we deeply long for in Christ, it still seems that our sin is such a predominant factor in our lives. And if this is true of the reason for verses 29 and 30 that we've just read, then we might say that this week's theme sounds a bit like this. That when we become focused on the worst works within us, God refocuses us here on his very best work within us. Now let's look at the clarity that context brings. 
So with this theme in mind, we'd have to ask, how is it that we can then say that Ferguson's analogy guides everything that we're discussing in today's study of Romans 8, 29, and 30? That analogy, again, is him saying that the brilliance, clarity, and majesty of the stars can only truly be seen against the backdrop of the darkest night. In short, his analogy guides us because it has in it the two most important components we can have if we want to see this text or any biblical text most clearly, and just as importantly, so that we can apply Scripture in the primary way that in this case, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, intends for it to be applied to our lives as believers. We do not get to, I know this is going to come as a shock, we do not get to apply Scripture any way we please. The first important component Ferguson's analogy provides is the subject itself. This is verses 29 and 30, represented by, in his analogy, the stars. And the second component of his analogy is the context within which that subject is placed, which is, of course, the dark night. So, if we know that our subject is Romans 8, 29, and 30 itself, then we have to ask, what is the context that it sits within? Well, we might be inclined to think that its context is everything we've covered so far in Romans 8, but we would only partially be right. And I say partially right because chapter 8 itself sits within a larger context, which is the previous chapter, specifically chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. And that is a context, in fact, that makes the entirety of chapter 8, everything we've been discussing, an answer to the spiritual dilemma proposed by Paul in chapter 7. And we'll look at what chapter 7 actually says, uh, summarized in an illustration in just a moment. Now, in terms of context, we're going to narrow that context down a little bit further. We also need to keep in mind that whereas chapter 8 is an answer to chapter 7, our verses 29 and 30 are the central feature of not only chapter 8 but all of Scripture. Whoa, bold claim. Why? Because chapter 8 verses 29 and 30 teach us about the mind, the heart, and the purpose of God who is the ultimate cause, who is the ultimate protector of our eternal salvation. And that salvation that we so take for granted is actually the single most important event that could ever transpire in the life of a human being. That's how important that's how important verses 29 and 30 are for us to apprehend if we're to live with the peace of assurance that actually drives Christian vision and mission. So here's the context for our verses, the dark night against which our verses are set. This Romans 7, 14 through 25, summarized by the following real-life Christian scenario. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love Jesus Christ deeply. The problem, however, is that you have an increasing awareness with every other attempt at being holy that you're not holy. Maybe this owes to some besetting sin that presents itself maybe as an obsession or an addiction 
lot of that going around. Maybe it's a quick temper. Maybe it's just being busy with what feels like very little time for cultivating a relationship with Jesus. And in turn, you've become somewhat maybe indifferent towards the whole Christianity thing. So you're kind of going through the motions at best. Guys, there are so many things in this life that deliberately seek to disrupt our walk in Christ. Tell me you don't know that. All you know is that deep down in a place that so often seems impossible to reach, you desperately want to do the good which God has placed in your heart to do, and just as desperately, you want to abstain from the evil that so presently occupies all our hearts. But the opposite seems to be happening every time you take stock of your so-called Christian performance. And like Paul himself, as well as for the believers he's writing to, when we go through these seasons of authentic self-assessment, it causes a genuine fear within us that even though we know theologically we shouldn't have, it still makes us doubt the eternal good standing of our relationship with God. Hey guys, it's written in chapter 7. That's normal. It's not great, but it's normal. And when we doubt our relationship with God, we are far less likely to engage in the vision and the mission of the church, which is to do what? To spread the gospel, seizing every opportunity. The unwitting mindset becomes this. Can we really offer to the world that peace which we're not even certain we have? It's as if in those moments against all the logical, sensible, Christ-focused theology we know is true, that we still feel the massive weight of our eternal salvation now somehow depending on us instead of God. So when Paul's very first words coming out of the agony of Romans 7 are this, there's now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus Remember, this is before chapter and verse. He says that because he feels condemned. He feels condemned. And furthermore, he knows his readers have already felt or at some point in their walk of faith will feel condemned because of their uncooperative and contrary natures that never this side of heaven cooperate with the Spirit of God operating within them. But watch how the Holy Spirit refreshes Paul to take the isolating darkness of sin and turn it instead into what may be the most salvation-assuring chapter in all the Bible. As an answer for his own soul and for his readers, he says this effectively in Romans 1. I paraphrase. There is no need for your indwelling, for your isolating, ongoing sin to drive you inward, isolated to the point of feeling condemned. Why? Because your true identity, your true freedom to serve the lost world is not in you. It's in your identity in the sinless perfection of another whose name is Jesus Christ. And if that's true, then we're obligated, guys, obligated 
verses 29 and 30, we're obligated to view those as the substantiation, the proof that what Paul has said already about no condemnation for those in Christ, that it is objectively, unchangeably real. Objectively real because God who though he is also personal, yes, he is purely objective in the sense that he does not waver. He does not, he cannot be thwarted by some subjective unforeseen emotion regarding his purpose or plan. God is the one whom Hebrews 12 says is solely responsible for initiating, sustaining, and finishing our eternal destiny in Christ. Do you hear what wonderful news that is for a lost world who is so self-focused and turned in on itself? With verses 29 and 30, which reveal to us the fact that God foreknew us, predestined us to be conformed into the image of Christ, and called us then, and justified us, and glorified us in Christ, Paul steers us back again to look to utterly fix our gaze upon that same Christ which we so often take our eyes off of. And in every case when we do that, it causes true believers to despair at some level because the source of our peace and joy seems lost to us in those moments. The late Jim Boyce once said this. He said, lest we should ever think that our salvation depends even a little bit on our love for God. Though that's important, we must ever be reminded that our salvation can only ever depend upon the fact that God has set his love upon us. And these verses objectively and absolutely prove that to be true. Now that we've made what I hope is a reasonable case for the context of Romans 8, 29, and 30, we'll spend the rest of our time on the subject, that is the verses themselves, there are some in this room within earshot even right now who are desperate to be reassured that their salvation depends on God and not them. So let's look at what I'm calling the five objective truths of our eternal assurance that Paul gives us which prove the love of God toward us and in so doing secures for us the deep piece of assurance that drives our outward-facing Christian vision and mission. Foreknowledge, those whom God foreknew. Important to note, because it's a prevailing school of thought in Christianity, there are those who, not being willing to relinquish the man-centered philosophy of the autonomous, self-determining free will of man, they tend to explain God's foreknowledge like so. Since God is all-knowing, he foresees the choices of his creatures. That part's certainly true. And on that basis determines whether or not to elect them to eternal salvation. That part is not true. This explanation of foreknowledge neither fits the subject nor the context of Romans 8, 29, and 30. Nowhere in the text does God say that he foreknows what his creatures will do. Again, it's a given that he does know, but the text itself says simply, those whom he foreknew. That's a very raw, basic concept of God's foreknowledge being promoted here by Paul that God simply, yet absolutely and completely knows us personally. 
Finally, given the overall context of what we've discussed in Romans 7, 14 through 25, that we've already made clear that Paul is in some agony over his inability to be holy. We know then that neither we nor God is able to depend upon our good choices, our good actions, so that he might accept us based on those things, because there's simply no purely motivated good actions, good choices available from within ourselves, absent God's work in our hearts, which of course means that in this, God is thus proven to be the one doing all the work on our behalf. In this case, determining beforehand that he would indeed know us. Otherwise, it simply never happens. And we must remember that all of verses 29 and 30 show God in full, completely, never depending on us, doing all of the work. Every one of these things is him. So divine foreknowledge as it's used in Romans 8.29 means that God before time and space were ever established knew you. You. What you would or wouldn't do was never a determining factor in whether he chose to set his love upon you and thus know you. Let that settle in. That gives hands and feet to the likes of 1 John 4.19 that reminds us that we only again love him because why? Yeah, say that loud because he first loved us. Wow, does that settle in with you when you wake up in the morning. There's no reason for it. This concept of foreknowledge shows that our salvation, if we're looking for assurance for our souls, our salvation has its very origin in the mind and heart of God and not in our choice of him. He loved and secured us, Ephesians 1-4, from before a time we ever knew and only then did we and do we still come to know, embrace, and love him. That is assurance for our souls predestination. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Well, just like foreknowledge made up of two words, predestined is made up of two words, pre, beforehand, and destined, or destination. Borrowing slightly from, again, James Montgomery Boyce here, the essential difference between foreknowledge and predestination, because those terms are often conflated as if they meant the same thing, and they do not, the essential difference is that whereas foreknowledge means that God has set his love upon us from a time before we existed, predestination is the act by which God appoints us to, what does the verse say? become conformed into the image of his son Jesus. Simply put, our ultimate destiny. You want to know what that is? I can't wait to find my destiny. Okay, cool. Your ultimate destiny in Jesus Christ, in God's mind and heart long before we ever physically existed is to be made like Jesus. A process that, by the way, will only find its completion when we finally leave this world for our true home. That, in a word, as Paul intended, is predestination, and that is assurance for our souls. Calling those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those whom he predestined, he also called. First off, 
There have been many in the historic church who have confused Paul's use and meaning of the English term called from Romans 8 with Christ's use of it in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, where Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. In so doing, they conclude from Christ's words here, oh, so it definitely is possible for God to call someone to salvation only for those he calls to refuse the call. My Ted Lasso moment here, in the words of Roy Kent, no, that's dumb. Why do I say that? Well, first off, if Paul is given these verses, even the whole of chapter 8, to assuring true Christians of the reality of their salvation, it's dumb to think that he would even do that by hinting at something like this following rational conclusion which that bad theological reasoning comes to. Well, since God's choice of you depended upon you responding favorably to his call, then naturally you remaining in Christ also depends on you responding completely morally and perfectly to every other call God issues once you've become a Christian. You wouldn't have articulated, articulated it that way, but I promise you, that's what Satan in your flesh does. Rolls that thought to, through your mind. I chose him, I can unchoose him through my sinful actions. No. There's zero assurance in that because Paul is already talking to Christians, hello, Romans chapter 7, who know that they're the problem, who know that they do not respond to God in the moral and perfect ways they should with the frequency they should be doing it with. It's the very reason they lack assurance. Because why? Because they cannot fix it. Try as they might, they cannot fix that and want to. Not one sensible person on the planet goes looking for the remedy we desperately seek. We, nobody goes looking for that from within the source it's coming from. <laughs> nobody does that. That also, dumb. That assurance that we have, secret, secret, sorry. I made myself laugh. All right. <laughs> anyway, the assurance that we have for this remedy of unholiness, it comes from outside of ourselves, namely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, in order that we might add some tangible forensic evidence to support this case, we're building the Greek term kletos, translated as called in the Matthew 22 passage, particularly given in the context in which Jesus is speaking, can and frankly should be understood to be a general calling meaning invited. You can refuse it. But Paul uses a different Greek term in explaining God's definitive and particular calling of his people. A people whom, please remember, he has already determined will absolutely be his. That term is kaleo. Paul wants us to be certain by the use of this very specific term, God is not giving a general call or invitation like the one Jesus speaks of in Matthew 22. He is kaleo. He is naming with a specific name those whom, as we said in the foreknowledge section, those whom he has already determined he would know. This makes this a particular calling, not a general one. 
For God is proving to us that by ascribing to us an eternal name that he has chosen for us, this means that when he calls us through the proclamation of the gospel, he's not wondering if we're going to come, if we're going to refuse the invitation. He's simply and absolutely calling us, Kaleo, by that name, to the destiny that he has already determined and secured for us in Christ. And that is assurance for our souls justification, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these, these whom he called, he also justified. Justification in God's economy is an easy term to define. God counts us righteous only based on the merits of his son, Jesus Christ, which we then apprehend by faith alone. However, this might just be the most difficult concept for this Aristotelian-minded Western culture to get our minds around at either a, a philosophical or practical level. And all we mean by Aristotelian is that the philosopher Aristotle, you've heard of him, his famous contribution to humanity in the most humanistic way possible is the philosophy that, redacted, you are what you do. And most humans think this way naturally. Here's the problem. <laughs> Thinking this way in God's economy is a big problem because the very last thing you want the judge of all creation to judge you by is what you do or what you've done. That is by your own identity. The gospel says that God literally can only count you righteous in the identity of Jesus Christ, his perfect son. In this economy, you are, Aristotle, what Jesus Christ has done for you. And it should be noted that God does not count us righteous. He doesn't justify us because of our faith in and of itself. But instead, he counts us righteous through the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. Therefore, faith itself saves no one. Faith whose object is Christ saves everyone. And we should add that Ephesians teaches us that even the faith we have is given by God or we simply do not have it at all. And if this is true, much like God's calling us where God does the work knowing that it will have its intended effect on us, God gives us faith in order that we absolutely will believe on Jesus Christ with that gift of faith. That is to say that the gifts of God given to his elect are never given in vain. They will be used for the purpose for which they are given. And that is assurance for our souls. Finally, glorification. Three minutes, 31 seconds. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So the, okay, and he also glorified. This is the final link in the five objective truths of what history calls the golden chain of salvation. As such, the assurance of salvation, the answer to the dilemma of Romans 7. Remember, that's our whole context for Romans 8, which Paul gives us in these verses. Here in glorification, it finds its grand crescendo. It finds the apex of its intention in God glorifying his elect. Just as Paul explains that God has foreknown and predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son Jesus, so the definition of us being glorified is that God, Romans 8, 28, finally completes his good work in us by conforming us 
into Christ's image. Simply put, the fact that each of these truths is spoken of literarily in the finished, perfect tense, nothing else to be done, means that when God views us, Ephesians 2, he already sees us as completed, already glorified, take that in, because what he sees is us, as it were, covered by the glory that is Jesus Christ, our substitute and Savior, and that is assurance for our souls. Perhaps now we can see Ferguson's stars shining more clearly against our dark night My great hope for you is the same Paul's was for the church in Rome, that as our theme suggests, when we lose focus on Christ as the reason and means of our eternal salvation, when we begin to focus on the worst in us and our flesh and the devil have succeeded in creating that disquieting heaviness of self-dependency in our minds and hearts, when we lose sight of our missional purpose in and to the world, and when we simply have no sense of rest as Christ himself in Matthew 11 would have us enjoy rest, my great hope is that we will return to Scripture over and again to the comfort and assurance that the Word of God gives to once again find Jesus Christ, the Word himself, our great substitute, and in finding him afresh, we would find rest for our souls. I will thus only argue one point with Professor Morris, whom we have rightly been quoting during this series as saying, there is no imperative in all of Romans 8. And he's right. There is no explicit imperative. Ah, but Professor Morris, given the context in which Romans 8 is written, as an answer to the dilemma of the disquiet and unrest of the self-examining soul of Romans 7, there most certainly is at least an implicit imperative in all of Romans 8 with its pinnacle reached in these verses 29 and 30. And that implicit imperative is rest. Rest for you. Rest from moral self-reliance. Rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, where despite the agony of our ongoing sin, there is no condemnation. Therefore, there is no separation ever. May we always look for the stars of God's Word shining brightly against our dark nights.